Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. My name is Kerstin Lose Friedrich, and I'm the director of communications at Merrick's. What are the implications of China's growing global influence for the future work of internationally operating civil society organizations? And how can international civil society organizations such as Oxfam, Amnesty International, Save the Children, Transparency International deal with China, Chinese partners, and the Chinese Communist Party? These questions I want to discuss with my former Merrick's colleague Bertram Lang. He is the author of the recently released Sector Guide on China. The guidance document was written on behalf of the International Civil Society Center. Bertram is a researcher in political science and China studies at Goethe University Frankfurt. Welcome, Bertram. Thank you very much for having me. Please give me a short overview why this guidance called Scanning the Horizon has been published and who was involved. So Scanning the Horizon is an annual format by the International Civil Society Center, which has been running for a couple of years now, and which chooses one uh, cross-cutting topic for international civil society organizations each year. They focus on topics which will influence the longer trajectory of civil society development on an international scale for the coming 10 to 15 years, and try to bring together uh, specialists on that topic with global strategists and futurists from those organizations and trying to do long-term strategic planning on those issues. So in 2018, it was decided that uh, the global influence of China and, uh, as you said, the Chinese Communist Party, indeed, and diverse Chinese actors on civil society organizations across the world and especially in the global south has such a uh, tremendous and cross-cutting impact that this would be the one topic to focus on in the 2019 format. So they decided on the topic and then uh, contracted me as a uh, China researcher who has been working also with Merricks on uh, Chinese civil society and uh, foreign NGOs in China before. And uh, I was asked to, uh, first of all, carry out interviews um, looking at uh, where international civil society organizations currently stand. So these organizations who uh, basically own the uh, International Civil Society Center, they include diverse types of organizations, like, as you said, Oxfam, um, but also, on the one hand, rights-based organizations like Amnesty International and more service-oriented organizations like CARE, um, Save the Children or uh, Mercy Corps. So we have this diverse uh, set of organizations which I uh, could interview on uh, current trends, uh, how they're being influenced, how they're feeling, uh, the impact of China's actors already today in their uh, current work, and also where they stand in terms of reacting to those trends and defining what we now call uh, global China strategies. I remember when the NGO law was released in 2016, we often talked about, of course, international NGOs. Could you just explain me, please, in a simple way, what is the difference between INGOs, the international NGOs, and these international civil society organizations? So, eventually, this is mostly a technical difference. International civil society organization is the uh, self-chosen uh, term by those organizations, which really stresses the civil society uh, component. Um, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, tends to be a more uh, technical and official term which originated in the United Nations system and which is also being used by governments uh, in designating those actors, but also tends to include 
um, a much more a much broader set of actors. So for example, for the uh, Chinese foreign NGO or overseas NGO law indeed, uh, this includes not only the kind of ICSOs that we're talking about here, but also non-political organizations like business chambers, um, which are definitely not part of the ICSO uh, community in this understanding. Okay, thanks for clearing that. <laughs> what surprised you most when you were preparing the report? Well, indeed, I have to say, um, looking at the current situation and especially the media environment on uh, global China, which has deteriorated a lot, and um, we have to admit for good reasons, because China's human rights record has uh, deteriorated in recent years. We all have heard uh, last year about the uh, revelations about uh, massive human rights violations in Xinjiang, but it also uh, includes China's international influence, which we are going to be Uh, talking about later, which includes, for example, uh, influence on the UN uh, Human Rights Council and other uh, problematic aspects, of course, the situation in Hong Kong, not, uh, not least. So against this backdrop, I was kind of surprised how much will there is within those organizations to find ways of engaging, find ways of cooperating, and um, also how much is already happening on the ground, however, in a very dis uh, dispersed manner. So often there's a very practical, low-key, on-the-ground engagement, for example, in Eastern African countries in Southeast Asia by those country teams of uh, ICSOs, which, however often the uh, China teams of those same organizations are not even uh, aware of, or uh, the ICSOs themselves are not keeping track systematically of this. So there's really this great need for uh, systematization and for a, a concerted strategy, which Well, uh, I was uh, happy to hear that uh, ICSOs themselves are aware of this problem and uh, it's also part of why they want to address this on a more systematic uh, scale. Speaking about systematic approach, you are describing four key trends um, and their implications for these international civil society organizations. Um, let's dive a bit deeper and have a look on these four trends. The first one is called Changes in Chinese Investment and Development Finance under the Belt and Road Initiative. What does this have to do with these organizations? Well, the Belt and Road Initiative has often um, been described as China's new alternative to Western development cooperation models. And we call it changes because uh, we openly acknowledge that the Belt and Road Initiative is mostly a new label, um, which is being pinned or added to activities that have been around before Xi Jinping came to power. So, for example, China's aid to Africa has been growing for 20 years now at a massive scale, and uh, China's involvement in many uh, developing countries has been growing rapidly, and this concerns both foreign investment and development aid. What is changing now with the Belt and Road Initiative is that the, the diplomatic uh, stakes for China have been raised a lot because Xi Jinping has uh, personally owned, personally proposed and owned uh, this initiative. His foreign policy standing is very much tied to the success of the Belt and Road. So the Belt and Road, there's always been in Chinese development aid, there's always been this conflict between economic and diplomatic interests, to be sure, also in the infights between the Ministry of Commerce and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. But now the diplomatic stakes are really high. And this means that China is in development projects more and more um, reactive to uh, negative backlashes against its projects. There have been various reports uh, from Sri, uh, Sri Lanka to uh, Malaysia uh, about uh, and Myanmar, not uh, least, against uh, 
public backlash, uh, even uh, elections which have been defined by anti-China populism, we have to say. And uh, Chinese decision makers and foreign policy makers are trying to, uh, to work on their image and trying to improve this image. And here is where civil society or non-governmental organizations are really coming in from the Chinese perspective. Because non-governmental organizations uh, are seen as a way of diversifying uh, China's foreign policy and China's development policy. And so the Chinese government has started to try to actively learn also from uh, Western development approaches. For example, a lot of uh, efforts to learn from how uh, projects are outsourced to NGOs in uh, Western development aid, how they are monitored and evaluated. And what we're also seeing now on the ground is that there is growing engagement or growing efforts uh, to engage uh, international civil society organizations uh, who have the local expertise in uh, many countries because they've been around there for uh, decades often, um, both by Chinese foreign policy makers, but also by Chinese companies who are just like their Western counterparts concerned about their negative images uh, when it comes to labor rights violations, uh, environmental degradation due to investments, etc. And um, especially Chinese companies being less experienced in these uh, uh, image management uh, regards, they're, or at least some of them are starting to pick up on those issues and try, are basically seeking help from um, both uh, Chinese NGOs and uh, ICSOs in terms of how they can improve their corporate social responsibility uh, programs, but also uh, trying to make up for the environmental damage that their uh, projects cause. Of course, this is still at a very early stage and we shouldn't exaggerate the impact of this, but they are interesting trends. And since we're looking at uh, a horizon of 10 to 15 years, uh, there's definitely um, a lot that's happening now and which is going to develop further, at least in a rather optimistic scenario where there's no open new Cold War, which many uh, people are also now uh, foreseeing for the coming decade, as long as relations between China and Europe and uh, China and the US stay more or less at the level where engagement is still possible overall, I think there's great perspective for more practical on-the-ground engagement in these regards in the coming decade. The second key trend you are describing is about China's aspiration to become a global technology leader. Uh, what about these two-edged technical innovations, which can provide, of course, a huge potential for fighting poverty in uh, many regions of China, and on the other hand, which is a threat to individual freedom? So when it comes to Chinese technological innovation, this is of course a huge and, and very vast topic and also something looking at the interviews and the discussions that we had between ICSOs, a topic which is probably among those four drivers the least explored and the, the least well understood by ICSOs themselves so far. In Western discussions, mostly we're talking about uh, technological competition um, for for example, European companies in the automotive sector and others, and we're talking about surveillance, um, which is, of course, a, a huge issue because if we're looking especially at face recognition uh, technology, um, this is, of course, from a liberal perspective, a massive threat to individual freedoms and therefore also from a civil society perspective, a very concerning aspect, uh, especially given that this kind of technologies are 
often by private companies who develop them, um, exported to other countries, authoritarian, but also semi-authoritarian countries. So we've seen a deployment of those technologies, for example, in Ecuador, Venezuela, um, and other countries. And here there's really a stake for civil society to work together, ICSOs to work together with local civil society in those countries and highlight the risks attached to that. I think there's no influence to be had for European organizations or Western organizations on the situation in China. Also, Chinese civil society is not able, not allowed to address those issues in mainland China. So here we're talking really about the expert of such technologies. On the other hand, there's even to face uh, recognition technology, there's positive aspects like uh, Tencent uh, Foundation is starting to use face recognition technology to fight against child trafficking and to uh, bring back uh, lost or abducted children by uh, using old photos from their parents. So um, this is not in defense of the technology per se, but uh, there's even for this kind of technology, there are upsides. But there are many other technologies here when we talk about development, which have much clearer and broader advantages. So, for example, in health and medicine, we don't even have to speak about the large Chinese companies, but there are many small Chinese startups which are developing, for example, uh, new vaccines, that are developing new solutions. Uh, if we talk about education, um, new solutions for automated learning, uh, to use AI to bring high-end education content to uh, left-back rural areas, to children who usually don't even have enough access to good teachers. So there's great potential uh, and a lot that's happening within China by also smaller companies which don't have the capacities to export those technologies and especially not uh, to do that uh, in a way uh, that's beneficial for developing countries. So here's a role, uh, again, for international civil society organizations that are working on those issues, for example, in education uh, to help such Chinese uh, startups internationalize their innovations, but also do it in a way um, that's beneficial for uh, poorer communities and marginalized communities in other countries. The third key trend is about the internationalization of Chinese non-governmental actors. You described them a bit already. What does that mean for the international cooperation with Chinese NGOs and foundations? So there has been um, this trend for 10 years or so now that um, starting with large Chinese uh, foundations, often with a government background, like for the China Foundation for Poverty Alleviation, um, which have started to internationalize their mostly humanitarian programs, um, deploying humanitarian aid to Nepal and other neighboring countries of China. But we're also seeing uh, smaller NGOs and more uh, bottom-up grassroots organizations, especially in the environmental field, where uh, this is possible and where this is um, politically non-sensitive, so to say, which are actively looking for international cooperation partners um, and are also trying to bring a Chinese perspective to the uh, international scene. So, of course, ICSOs are looking uh, very actively at this aspect because this is about concrete uh, cooperation with potential uh, Chinese peers. And ICSOs like Mercy Corps, for example, have already for a couple of years been or played a very constructive role in supporting those Chinese organizations in capacity building for international activities, because this implies a huge amount of challenges for those organizations. Challenges, challenges in terms of 
knowing uh, the partner or the target country, knowing the legal situation there, dealing with intercultural situations, but also challenges in terms of the Chinese legal framework, which is simply not there for overseas activities now. So there's great potential in this regard, um, but what we need to get at uh, in a mid-term or longer-term perspective is really the kind of two-way partnerships that we're talking about in the sector guide, which means that such partnerships, uh, at least uh, in the longer perspective, should be assessed based on their on-the-ground impact for marginalized communities. There shouldn't be engagement for the sake of engagement. Um, this is a problem, I think, that's often uh, in the nonprofit sector that uh, you just showcase your output in terms of having built this new partnership and having these Chinese partners. But what's actually happening on the ground, is this actually beneficial? Is there an added value to triangular cooperation between a Western ICSO, a Chinese uh, philanthropic foundation and uh, local partner organizations in a uh, developing country? This is These are the things we have to find out and we have to work towards um, to make those um, and to bring the Chinese perspective into uh, development cooperation. And I think there is a lot um, that uh, Chinese nonprofits, Chinese non-governmental organizations can bring to the table, especially in light of their more recent uh, development experiences domestically. ICSOs from richer countries, they often have this um, this development aid, this classical development aid perspective, um, even if they are aware of it, they come mostly from uh, richer countries and have this rich country background and uh, cannot compare the situations with what they've experienced themselves. Whereas Chinese NGOs really often, they've been working in poorer rural Chinese provinces for years or decades and have witnessed this tremendous development challenges, but also this possibility of tremendous change. Um, and this is really something um, where Chinese locally developed solutions could be or have the potential to be uh, externalized for the benefit of other countries. Well, these organizations haven't been much in the light then uh, because I, I haven't heard much about them before. No, indeed. This is, um, and as I said, I mean, we're really talking about individual cases here. So this is a topic I'm also uh, focusing on a lot uh, myself in, in research. It's not a huge amount. Also, if we talk about philanthropic foundations, it's a tiny share of Chinese philanthropic foundations that are looking towards international cooperation projects to date. Also because of the uh, aforementioned uh, lacking legal framework. Uh, for example, carrying out project activities abroad is a huge challenge for a uh, Chinese philanthropic foundation um, because there are strict capital controls on how to spend money abroad. Also for a reason, because <laughs> philanthropic foundations can be abused for money laundering and other purposes. Um, but the Chinese government hasn't put in place uh, an appropriate framework for them to spend money abroad for uh, philanthropic uh, purposes. So yes, this is happening low-key so far. Um, it's at an early stage um, and yeah, European media attention or other public attention hasn't picked up on this at all. But I'm happy to see that uh, many ICSOs are already engaged with those uh, potential future partners um, at, a, at a personal and inter-institutional level. And therefore, I think, um, is this something we're going to hear about uh, in the future, especially when we talk about those um, large-scale philanthropic foundations, which are uh, created by some of the richest people in the world, indeed. <laughs> if we talk about uh, people like uh, Chan Yidan, uh, one of the co-founders of Tencent, who has set up his own foundations, both in Shenzhen and in Hong Kong. 
they are people with a lot of money and a lot of ambitions. And this needs to be on the horizon of uh, Western, of European observers as well, in a way of like critically accompanying these uh, developments. But I think we also really need to see the potential here um, of, of uh, a new, of new possibilities for cooperation beyond simple intergovernmental relations, which have traditionally been the way to engage China on uh, development cooperation issues. Bertram, the last key trend of the four we were mentioning is China's growing influence on global governance and the UN system. That's really an interesting topic. Where does this trend become most visible? Well, if we talk about global governance here, we're really mostly talking about Chinese official diplomacy. And it's certainly the trend where we see the most worrisome impact by Chinese Communist Party hardliners who are really trying to stifle any kind of dissenting voices or even moderate criticism of uh, Chinese policies, the Chinese Communist Party, China's human rights record on an international scale. Again, this is not something new. China has been trying to mold or remold international human rights norms in its own favor for uh, decades. And we've had these uh, rather unsuccessful human rights dialogues between the EU and China for uh, a long time now with uh, virtually no results because they've been abused by China basically just to pretend uh, improving its own human rights record. But China is increasingly smart and increasingly able to work not only uh, as a country formally in the UN Human Rights Council where they often manage to block resolutions that criticize China, um, but also bring in own resolutions which redefine uh, human rights uh, towards the idea of the right to development, which is said to be more important than individual or political human rights, but also to bring uh, their own staff into UN uh, organizations and all kinds of sub-organizations which are chronically un uh, underfunded, desperately in need of uh, government money, as countries like the US are massively withdrawing their own funding under the Trump administration, UN organizations are extremely vulnerable to this kind of influence and also to the kind of influence by former Chinese diplomats or people associated with the Communist Party who are now working in leading positions within those UN organizations. So this may be not China-specific because other authoritarian countries are also trying to do it, but the Chinese, uh, Chinese diplomacy is definitely... Uh, the most able and the most sophisticated at uh, silently undermining and influencing the UN system. And where this becomes relevant for civil societies, for example, when it comes to the accreditation of NGOs um, under the uh, UN Economic and Social Council, so ECOSOC accreditation, where again, China is sitting in the accreditation uh, committee and has been systematically uh, blocking access for NGOs that are either working for independent critical journalism or for minority rights, of course, for organizations that are uh, critical of the situation in Xinjiang, defending the rights of uh, Uyghur or Kazakh minorities there. And this is something that um, Western diplomats may be aware of, but uh, which is not received the kind of attention that it needs by governments um, from liberal democracies. This is Merrick's Experts.
You're listening to Merrick's Experts. I'm talking to Bertram Lang from Frankfurt University about the relationship of international civil society organizations in China. Bertram, how would you describe the biggest challenge for international civil society organizations who are active in China? So one challenge, one cross-cutting challenge which we haven't really been talking about so far is what we, to combine what we call outsider and insider strategies. Outsider strategies being um, the situation like, for example, Human Rights Watch of having no presence whatsoever in mainland China and being able to freely uh, scrutinize and uh, criticize China's human rights record uh, in any way, but also without the possibility of engaging Chinese actors to work towards improvements. Insider strategy, on the other hand, um, at the uh, extreme having a formal presence uh, with a representative office in mainland China, which opens up possibilities. And here we're really talking about global China, right? Um, I'm not talking about project activities in mainland China, which are a different topic, which we're deliberately not addressing in this report, because many other very good analysis and reports have been out there before on this issue. But in terms of uh, forging partnerships for uh, transnational and international cooperation, A direct representation in Beijing has huge benefits for those organizations because this is a lot about trust building, building personal relationships with the relevant government departments, um, finding other Chinese actors on the ground who are uh, looking for partners abroad. But of course, this insider position comes with uh, severe limitations on what you're able to say publicly. This is now openly acknowledged by all those uh, ICSOs. There have been taboo subjects always. Um, of course, the respect for the one country, two systems, for the one China policy. But the Chinese Communist Party also under Xi Jinping and with the Belt and Road Initiative is becoming more aggressive in uh, suppressing all kind of criticism, as I said before. And this means that even mild or constructive criticism of, for example, the environmental or social record of Chinese companies in other parts of the world can have negative repercussions or actual risks for staff of uh, ICSOs in China and for partners of those ICSOs, Chinese partners. So there is this definite risk or this cost, uh, cost of uh, self-censorship um, when you uh, are opting for this insider strategy. So balancing these two, outsider and insider position, is a, is a major challenge. Can individual organizations do this alone? Only to some extent. I think there are some organizations that are trying to both work constructively with Chinese partners and still keep their ability to uh, point out critical points. But here's really where the need for sector-wide uh, cooperation and collaboration comes in. And first of all, here we need to acknowledge that we need both outsider and insider organizations. From a global goods perspective, a global civil society perspective, I think there should be no debate about whether to work with or against China. Because the work of uh, Human Rights Watch on uh, critical human rights issues in uh, Xinjiang is just as important as the engagement work of more service-oriented organizations like Mercy Corps, um, who are working together with uh, Chinese partners. And this, I think, should be generally acknowledged in the civil society discourse. And then we can talk about how to combine those strategies and issues like 
environmental governance, where we need both criticism of current negative impact of uh, Chinese investments and the possibility to work together with policymakers and those companies to improve the situation step by step. You were just mentioning Human Rights Watch and they just these days released their latest report, the World Report, and they blast China's oppression as they never did before. Would you agree with their statement and their assessment? I mean, you mentioned a bit already that the human rights records is deteriorating, but uh, this really radical um, assumption they give, is this the one you would agree on? Well, as I said, I think there's not the one right or wrong perspective. I think they're doing valuable research and uh, this research really needs to be done and probably there needs to be more of this. Um, there are probably too many organizations who are self-censoring and avoiding sensitive topics because of fears for implication of their uh, China programs, correctly so, but also even if they don't have a formal uh, Chinese presence simply because they want to uh, keep up partnerships with uh, Chinese organizations. But I think this problem concerns more, um, for example, European universities who want to keep their Confucius Institutes and uh, other issues where uh, institutions in our societies self-censor um, because of such uh, pragmatic or opportunistic reasons. It's not a reproach or it's not a, a criticism you can uh, rightfully direct towards ICSOs who are actively engaging in China and are aware of the limits uh, to what they can say. So again, I would say um, the work and uh, the research done carried out by Human Rights Watch and other outsider organizations is important and valuable, but it's only part of the story. You cannot condemn China as a country for uh, some policies which are certainly being um, led by its top leadership, but we have to be aware uh, that there are many other actors in the Chinese system and also in the Chinese bureaucratic system, and I've met many of those actors in development cooperation who really uh, trying to have a positive impact and trying to concretely work towards improvements, for example, in terms of improving uh, social and environmental impact assessments of Chinese investments. And these are concrete improvements we need to uh, support and we need to work towards um, and which cannot be done by organizations that have this outsider position and which are seen as uh, basically Western anti-China pariahs in the Chinese system. Where would you see the huge potential for cooperation? Which topics, issues are still possible to explore together? So I think the most obvious one is um, environmental impact assessments of Chinese investments that I just mentioned, because here we already have seen concrete policy changes. Um, what we've not seen is concrete steps or good steps towards implementation of those standards. So here, wherever we have Chinese laws or Chinese regulations, which are already out there and which often do integrate international um, standards and international, um, even international criticism uh, in, in, in the case of the Belt and Road, ICSOs can play a huge role in supporting the better implementation and better monitoring of those uh, standards, especially in overseas uh, development aid, where people in the Chinese system themselves recognize that there's a huge accountability and uh, also transparency problem. Other issues, I think, definitely include climate crisis uh, mitigation and adaptation. 
because there's huge diplomatic stakes for China in here. Um, China definitely wants to take over the leading role in the world here um, by also, of course, developing renewable energies. And I think many of those renewable energy uh, technologies can also be usefully deployed in uh, many developing countries. So this is definitely one area where China also has a huge uh, positive role to play at a global scale, even if um, they still continue to invest in coal. And uh, there are many uh, projects in the Belt and Road Initiative that have a very problematic uh, climate impact. So I'm not saying everything is fine, but these are the issues. Um, we might add um, the field of health policy, where also we're talking about uh, Chinese innovations and uh, the potential to externalize them, where good and concrete cooperation and added value is possible. Before we come to an end, I would like to mention Hong Kong. We saw a huge wave of protests uh, within the last months. We saw violence from both sides. What would you say, which consequences do these developments in Hong Kong have on the um, works and the levee of international civil society organizations? So most immediately, polarization of the situation in Hong Kong has created very tangible problems for many ICSOs that are fundraising in Hong Kong through their Hong Kong offices. Um, fundraising for activities in mainland China has been a major, a major component of uh, several ICSOs work in recent years because there's a lot of wealth in Hong Kong, but also a lot of uh, willingness. There used to be a lot of willingness to uh, donate money for carrying out projects in poorer areas in mainland China. And On the one hand, this willingness uh, is decreasing, this willingness by the Hong Kong population to give for projects in mainland China, but also those ICSOs, which are trying to balance the insider and outsider strategy, have come under severe, especially social media, but also more uh, broadly, uh, public criticism in Hong Kong for not speaking up, for not taking a position when there's only for or against Beijing. And organizations like uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, which traditionally try to take a neutral stance also in, in carrying out humanitarian work, have come under criticism. Others um, have been lambasted and even received boycott calls on, uh, on their fundraising activities because they don't take a stance for the Hong Kong pro-democracy protests. And then more broadly, I think... What's problematic uh, about this polarization now is that the potential of Hong Kong as a hub for internationalization of Chinese philanthropy, uh, Chinese non-profit work and engagement with um, Western counterparts in a more secure legal environment has come under severe strain. I experienced this myself, spending time in Hong Kong last September and trying to engage with Chinese philanthropic foundations, which have set up uh, branch offices or have been entirely set up in Hong Kong there, they've become extremely prudent in this regard because um, Hong Kong has become simply a sensitive topic per se uh, due to the situation. And as you know, um, the uh, mostly peaceful protests have been portrayed as being close to terrorism and uh, being close to complete chaos in mainland Chinese media. So for Chinese organizations, it has become extremely difficult to use this as a hub for international engagement. 
Bertram, thanks a lot for these insights and for joining us today. I talked to Bertram Lang from Goethe University Frankfurt, who is the author of the Sector Guide on China for International Civil Society Organizations. Thanks for joining. My name is Kerstin Lose Friedrich. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.